The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I have a cold tonight, but uh, I'll do my best to get through the talk. So, some of you know we've been looking at Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, in one chapter 11 this week. And he's talking about uh, actually introducing the next section. So the book is divided uh, according to the three aspects of the Eightfold Path. So just generally, the path that the Buddha laid out, <clears throat> he talks about mindfulness, of course, being good in all ways and all things. But he specifically mentions three places to be mindful. I mean, there's different talks, but in terms of the Eightfold Path, he's saying, develop this wise balance of mind and bring it into your world of relationships. And we call this living with integrity or ethical conduct, morality, where we're using this capacity that we all have to be awake, to be interested, to see clearly, and in terms of our relationships, to see clearly whether we're relating to our partners, our friends, our boss, are we relating in a wholesome way? And the way we relate to the community generally, is that a wholesome way of relating? So just being awake to this, clearly that's an important place to bring our practice. And in a way, that's what we've been talking about the last month or so, first ten chapters. In different ways, we're about how to be awake to the world, to the world of our relationships. Now, this next section, starting with chapter 11, it's really about taking mindfulness and looking at the mind more directly. So instead of evaluating or being sensitive to how we're relating in the world, and in a gross way, we're really seeing like how we're being unskillful or moments of being really skillful. There's also this ecology of the mind. So it's not just about being skillful out in the world, but we're understanding that it's really important to get a sense of what the mind is doing, in a sense, inside of itself. The kind of relationships we have to the different qualities of our mind. Not just the content, but also the underlying qualities. What is this mind doing? And is it skillful or not? You know, if we're chewing on impatience and we happen to have a moment of mindfulness, it's very revealing to see how unproductive it is to be caught in the idea of impatience and proliferating with that. The Buddha, in in this chapter, Ajahn they tell us that the mind is essentially pure. In this chapter, Ajahn Chah says, actually the mind, like rainwater, is pure in its natural state. That's a beautiful image. If you've been lucky, you've come across some of those pools of water that are so clean that instead of like 
having difficulty seeing down into the water. It's almost like the water supports the scene. It magnifies. You know, when you look down, <clears throat> it may be 10 or 15 feet deep, but the stones you see seem close. The water is so pure, so clean. In the Buddha, in one of his talks, he talked about how the different unwholesome qualities of mind, how they make it hard to see. You know, using that image of the mind as pure water, pure, still water. You know, and then greed, he says, it's as if you put dye in the water. You know, it's, the water's stained. The whole water has that red color or that blue color. And if you have ill will, it's as if that water's boiling. It makes it really hard to see. And if you have, uh, excuse me, dullness, it's as if the water's muddy. And if you have restlessness in the mind, it's as if the wind has whipped up the water in lots of little waves. And if you have doubt, it's as if the water is choked with weeds. So this is how it is for us most of the time. We have quite heavy. My mind feels like a, you know, two-ton sponge. You know, it's like heavy and wet and gooey. And that very, very wieldy. It's a word that's used sometimes in the Buddhist text. It gets, the word gets translated as wieldy, like a mind that's able to do whatever it needs to do. It's really nimble and alive and bright and creative. <clears throat> not confused, not getting caught. But, you know, a lot of the times that's not a good description for our mind. Our mind is the opposite. It's heavy. It's uh, caught, identifies, it's sticky. Things are really sticky in the mind. It wants to go back over and over again in a particular pattern, in a particular unproductive pattern. And then we should know, like, not so much, we don't want to build a sense of self around that mind. We actually want to remember at that time this teaching that the mind, maybe we just have to take it as a possibility, but remember that the mind is essentially pure, essentially radiant, luminous. This luminous quality of the mind is the mind that just knows. You know, it's really amazing now, you can even notice as I'm talking, how effortlessly the mind knows the sound of my voice, or nose, the sensations of your body sitting, or nose. This bright or luminous quality of mind, do you feel like you have to personally do the knowing? The mind just does that. It's really amazing, but we miss it because we're so caught in the objects that are being known, the thoughts that are being known, the experiences that are being known, that we miss this truly amazing quality of knowing this natural luminosity of the mind. Same with the purity of the mind. The way purity is described is even though the mind is luminous, it just effortlessly knows, like a mirror effortlessly reflects what's in front of it. Our minds effortlessly know what's going on. Seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, seeing, it effortlessly knows these things, and 
that knowing is empty, it's pure, like it isn't governed by somebody. There's nobody doing the knowing. So that's the purity part. Sometimes in Buddhism we call it emptiness. You know, that the knowing is empty of self. It's empty of a center. There is knowing, right? Our mind is awake. It's conscious, consciously aware. And even if we have a sense that I'm the one who's aware, can't that be known? So that's not the knowing, that's something being known, right? Whatever, however we imagine that I'm knowing, that's me that's knowing, that can be known, that can be an object that's being known. So no matter how you try, you know, just being mindful, you will, you know, in having a deep sense of inquiry, (coughs) excuse me, Little by little, you naturally get to know the mind and get to know what the Buddha means when he says the mind is naturally pure and luminous. Although it's obscured by visiting defilements, you know, our habits, where the mind, in a sense, gets caught in an object. We feel impatient. And then the mind gets identified with the impatience. It takes it personally and feels personally compelled to think, to proliferate about the impatience. Why is this person doing this? Why is there a traffic jam at this time of the day? Why do I always feel unworthy? So we can get caught in so many experiences. So many things are being known and then the mind gets caught. And in a sense, it gets lost in its ongoing pattern of reactivity, of proliferation. In this chapter, Ajahn Chah says, this mind doesn't have any self or substance. It doesn't have any form. It just experiences mental activities. That's all. If we teach this mind to have right view, this mind won't have any problems. It will be at ease. And this really gives a sense of the, this part of the practice where we're using the mind to know the mind directly. It's like finally, after being in a sense pushed around by our mental habits most of our life, finally we realize I can take responsibility for the mind. In the same way that we realize I can take responsibility for my actions in the world. In that same way, we can say, you know, it's really a dawning on the mind, in the heart. Oh, whether I like it or not, whether it's easy or not, I'm actually responsible for what the mind is doing. So I might as well learn how to pay attention to what the mind is doing, because one way or another, the mind is doing something, And there are all kinds of consequences because of what the mind is doing. You know, there's no way to spend our life, like let's say you're in an intimate relationship, you have a partner, husband, wife, and, uh, you know, as most of you who have been in long-term relationships know, it's challenging to be in a long-term relationship. And one of the things that makes it challenging is there we are in the long-term relationship, And 
although we wouldn't say it out loud, a lot of the time, there's something going on in the mind. Maybe we're complaining about the relationship, wanting the person to be other than what they are, different from what they are, wanting out, feeling hurt, so just remembering a particular experience where we felt betrayed. And we think, well, at least I'm not saying anything about it. You know, I'm smart enough not to say anything about it. But we think we get away with it because we're not saying something out loud as if it doesn't really matter that we're chewing on it day in, day out. It really does matter what the mind is doing. And this is what this more formal part of our practice, mind, mindfulness of the mind, or developing a quiet, even, or balanced mind, it's really about taking responsibility for the inner ecology of the mind. <coughs> being interested in it, and being willing to do whatever we need to do to take care of it. This is from Ajahn chapter. He says, let me explain more clearly. Imagine you're sitting in a peaceful forest. If there is no wind, the leaves are still. <coughs> if there's no wind, the leaves are still. When the wind arises, they flutter. This mind is similar to a leaf. When it contacts the mental impression, it trembles and flutters in a way that depends on the nature of that mental impression. And the less we know of Dhamma, this path of practice, the more the mind continually pursues mental impressions. Feeling happy, it succumbs to happiness. Feeling suffering, it succumbs to suffering. It's constant confusion. So this is really an interesting thing to reflect on, and then to reflect directly, like, is that true? The Ajahn says again, when it constructs, uh, when it contacts a mental impression, it too, it trembles and flutters in a way that depends on the nature of the mental impression. So when there is a mental impression, what does the mind do? Well, this is what I was saying, this luminosity of mind, it's that natural sensitivity. In a way, if we're going to be alive and awake, we're going to be impacted by all kinds of sense contacts, sense impingements. There's just no way around that. So the formal meditation practice, we're creating the conditions where those sense contacts aren't extreme. You know, we're sitting in a quiet room without sudden things happening usually. It's relatively quiet. Sitting in a way that's relatively comfortable. But still, there are a lot of sense impressions arising, right? But we practice letting them in, letting them cause the heart, the mind to flutter, but not chasing that fluttering. That feeling that anything has to be done by the fluttering. So, for example, let's say you got some calm. You were with the in-breath. You were with the out-breath. 
you were with the next in-breath and the next out-breath. If you can be with four half-breaths like that, that's already something, isn't it? It's just that be with the mind or with the breath or with some object for five, ten, fifteen seconds without any wavering, things really begin to change. But usually at some point, a thought will arise or some other experience will be known and the attention will drop the object that it's knowing will drop the attention to the breath and it will pick up the other object. Whatever it is, it might be the sound of traffic, it might be an old memory arises in that quiet state. Sometimes those quiet states, like when we have a continuity of attention with the breath and the mind gets really subtle, it's almost like a vacuum. That stillness, that peace, it's like a vacuum. And just like a vacuum tends to draw in you know, unless it's really protected. In the same way, when the mind's really still and calm, it tends to draw off any unfinished business, any provocative image or old pain that hasn't been fully digested. And this is just inevitable. It's not like you're a bad practitioner if this happens. It's just going to happen. So, there we are. We have some stillness, some continuity with the breath, and then some old pain comes up, maybe in the form of an image, like a memory, an image of what happened back when. And that image is going to have, it's going to cause the heart to flutter. You know, it's going to make an impact. There's no way not to be touched by experience, whatever the experience is, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Everything touches the heart because the heart is luminous, it's sensitive. It knows. And the question is, at this point, once the heart has been touched by, let's call it a painful memory, as an example, then the question is, what do we do with that contact, that sensitivity, that wavering or fluttering or trembling of the heart? Do we take it and run? Well, yeah, truthfully, that's what we do most of the time, isn't it? When the heart's touched by an experience, especially something that's strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant, there's a very deep compulsion to want to think about it. Or to get tight, you know, to withdraw, or to grab a hold. That's our basic condition nature, is to react to strong, pleasant, or unpleasant experiences, and to ignore neutral experiences. So meditation practice is just the opposite. We're sitting in a comfortable way, in a safe place, if we can, and we still have sense impingement, sense contacts, and being a sensitive creature, you know, they land, they cause a reverberation for a moment, and then our practice no matter what the reverberation is, whatever the fluttering is, our practice is not to pursue it. But that doesn't mean we're resisting or that we're denying the sense impingements. We're practicing being really awake, really sensitive, undefended, really letting things come and land and have their impact. And not being confused by what comes. Even really tricky things, like doubt is especially tricky, isn't it? We're sitting there, being with our breath, forgetting the breath, starting over, being with the breath for a moment, forgetting the breath, being with the breath. And then all of a sudden, the thought arises, 
I'm no good at this practice. You know, I'm just too restless. I bet if I saw a doctor, I'd get, you know, that, what is that, diagnosis, ADHD or something, and get some good meds to help me. And so we start thinking. We get caught in that doubt, like, maybe I, this isn't really good for me. Maybe I can't do this. So doubt, it's just that feeling of not being good at this, that thought, it's just very hard to just be aware of it without picking it up and running with it. <coughs> in the same way, if you have a little success in your practice and you're starting to feel some real calm and some joy in your practice, the pleasantness of that, the mind might take that personally and want to run with it. Oh, I finally got it. Finally figured out this practice. Finally, after all these months, all these years, it's really happening. You know, and of course, by then we've lost anything we've gained because the mind was confused by simple inner happiness. It wasn't able to let the inner happiness just be what it is, to be touched by inner happiness. And so for the practice to unfold, we have to be willing to be touched by the most unpleasant, provocative, nudgy, pleasant, beautiful experiences. And basically, our practice doesn't unfold until the heart remains unmoved, no matter what happens. That's really the practice. That's why the image of sitting still with that beautiful integrity in the posture, it's such a potent image. That's why the statues are useful. It's like it conveys something to us, doesn't it, Mike? I'm sitting right in the middle of life. It's a symbol. It doesn't mean that the ideal we have as people following the teachings of the Buddha is to sit still and let life pass us by. But we're doing a particular training when we formally sit so that we can do the same thing in daily life as we're acting, as we're responding and dealing with those responsibilities in life, there can still be something that's unmoved, that's dispassionate, disenchanted. We get touched, you know, deeply touched because we've been practicing and learning how to be awake and sensitive. We can be deeply touched by something like what happened on Friday. But on the one hand, not obsessively needing more information about it, sort of identified with the drama and addicted, basically, to the drama, to the intensity. They're not shutting it up, not like having a set answer, well, you know, we should lock these people up or nobody should have guns or, you know, as a way of blocking our uh, being afraid and resisting the pain. The pain of the uncertainty or the pain of feeling helpless in light of the kind of world we live in. So instead, you know, like in daily life, we bring what we learn sitting into daily life and we practice being undefended and we feel touched. Sometimes tremendous sadness, sometimes tremendous anger, sometimes, you know, profound motivation to do something. All kinds of different things probably in different moments. And we're not expecting or needing the way the heart's reverberating, the trembling, 
fluttering. We're not needing it to be any particular way. And we're not feeding it, and we're not resisting it or hiding from it, because we have learned, or we're learning, not to be confused by the sensitivity. There's one more paragraph here, and Ashtar goes on and says, In the end, people become neurotic. <clears throat> Why? Because they don't know. They just follow their moods and don't know how to look after their own minds. When the mind has no one to look after it, it's like a child with a mother or father, without a mother or father to take care of it. An orphan has no refuge, and because of that, feels very insecure. Likewise, if the mind is not looked after, if there's no training or maturation of character with right understanding, things can get really troublesome. So what Arjun Chah is talking about here is when we have sensitivity, which we all have, you know, this knowing, this capacity to know, without wisdom, when we have knowing without wisdom, then the mind is constantly reacting to what's being known. And there's really no end to that reactivity. Because not only do we react to what's being known, then we react to our reaction. And as we're reacting to our reactions, probably if there are people around us, they're going to start reacting to our reactions, and then we're going to react to their reactions. And the apt description for the whole world is we're all reacting and reacting to each other's reactions. That's what it is. That's kind of the surface of our human civilization. We're reacting. We're like that proverbial chicken with the head cut off, jumping around but blind. Thinking that, uh, you know, like when you stub your toe or bang your head, how we have that tendency to curse and jump around and kick something. I mean, it's really that unproductive. But we do it in all kinds of ways, you know. We read a particular article about the stock market and... It brings up some primal fear, so we get our stockbroker on the phone and we sell everything. And then, of course, things rise or something like that, and we feel so betrayed, you know, and then, then with that pain, we go ahead and buy a lot of stock, you know, don't want to be a sucker. It's like, in avoiding being the fool, we become the fool, because we're so desperate not to be the fool. But we're always doing the same thing. We're uh, taking the sensitivity, what we're sensitive to, personally and reacting. Right understanding is the capacity not to be confused by the sensitivity. So I want to talk a little bit about the training (coughs) and how important it is in the beginning to really emphasize some basic seclusion. There's a there's some basic healing that needs to happen that really allows us to do the deeper work of meditation, whether it's formal city meditation or practicing through the, throughout the day. You probably noticed if you've been coming for a while that I often begin the meditations with a, a pretty formal instructions to connect and sustain attention with the breath. 
And sometimes I'll even use, uh, suggest that people use a phrase, like, as you're breathing in, to, to repeat the word, knowing. Just to remind the mind of what it's doing, it's knowing. And then with the out-breath, to repeat the word, something like, releasing. To just notice that that's a possibility for the heart, the mind, not to be holding to anything. Knowing, releasing. Or like we did today, you know, just the suggestion to know the breath all the way through as it's coming in, to know that transition, and then to know the out-breath all the way through, and then that transition. Because the first thing we have to do before we can do really any good work is we have to break the cycle of reacting to reacting. And to do that, like, even to some degree now, we know that we're reacting to reacting. That if I try to do something directly about that, then I'm still reacting to reacting, aren't I? It's like, I see the reacting to reacting. I don't like it. I want it to stop. So I'm going to do this. So that's reacting to reacting. So this is why the Buddha has this idea of samsara, the cycles of suffering. Everybody is trying to get out of suffering. There is no human being that is looking for suffering, looking for stress. <coughs> but it arises because the strategies we use to go beyond suffering actually are the strategies that create it. They keep bringing us back, to keep reinforcing that experience. So, the first thing we have to do is we have to somehow break that cycle. And when wisdom isn't really strong, the only way to break that cycle is through redirecting the attention. So, it's not always the case, but generally the best way to do that is to do one thing wholeheartedly, completely. If you're out during your day, you can walk from your car to your office wholeheartedly. That's all you're doing. You're just aware of the lifting and the placing or the movement of the body or the seeing. But you're not doing anything else. You're just bringing the attention back. And in so doing that, you're letting go. You can't be reacting to your sensitivity and wholly aware of walking or breathing or whatever your object of meditation is at the same time. So the easiest way initially for people to have some freedom from that pattern of reacting to reacting to reacting is to train the mind to connect and sustain with some activity. And so for formal meditation practice, something that's been done for thousands of years is just to follow the breath coming in and to follow the breath going out. Not to control the breath. The breath is just allowed to happen. The body knows how to breathe, but the mind is just aware of it. So it's like learning how to be, like it has a job to do, to know the breath. But remember, we're going beyond reacting to reacting, so we don't need to react to the breath. So that's why we have to tease out the tendency to want to control the breath, make the breath better, smoother, longer, deeper. But just to let the breath come in and know that. Let the breath go out and to know that. And not to forget it. So that continuity is really essential. It's not enough to just kind of know the breath. 
You have to be actually interested in the breath. So interested in the breath that you're going to notice any wavering, like any wanting to think about this or look at that. Say, no, right now, just this. And in doing that, we start to feel what it's like when we're not reacting to reacting. We start to feel, you could call it an inner wholeness or unity. A better word than concentration is probably unification of mind. The mind is unifying around the simple, sustained knowing. It's knowing the breath coming in, knowing the breath going out. There's nothing special about the breath. The mind can have the same unification, knowing the breath, knowing knee pain, knowing hearing, knowing seeing, Knowing knee pain, knowing knee pain, knowing the next in-breath, in-breath, out-breath, out-breath. So you can have that same unification knowing many different objects, one object at a time. Or you could just use one particular object. For most people, it's easier in the beginning to just have one object. And generally, what's recommended is feeling the body sitting, just that general sense of sitting up, those sensations or feeling the particular sensation of the breath, perhaps at the tip of the nose, so you're just feeling the breath coming in, that simple touching, you know, the air touches there, and then as it comes out, it touches at the nostrils, and you're just feeling that touching in and out. Or even hearing works as an object for some people. So those are three options. Feel the body sitting, generally. Feel the breath, more specifically, at the nostrils, or wherever the breath is clear or using hearing. Not just hearing particular sounds, but all the sounds in the moment together, like an orchestra. You're not figuring out the sounds, you're just receiving the sounds. Aware of hearing continuously, in an unbroken way. And see, in this way then, we, you know, initially we have to actually discover... We have to discover what it is to have a steady mind. Because when we're reacting to reactivity, reacting to reacting to reacting, the mind is constantly fragmented. It doesn't really realize its unity, its emptiness, its purity. It's knowing that that knowing is contracted. But when we have that continuity of mindful attention, that wise mindful attention continuously, then we start to experience that inner healing, which in Buddhism we call samadhi. And samadhi is really essential. If you want deeper insight, if you want to see what you're not seeing, if you want to transform your life, the proximate cause for insight, for really changing things in your life, is samadhi, this balance of mind. So, in a sense, we have to heal the mind before the mind can see what's off. Normally, we think, well, i got to see what's off so I can heal the mind. But first, we have to really heal the mind. And it takes a lot of wisdom to do that, you know, just to respect the this training and not to do it because it takes obviously a lot of effort you've got to find a time every day or if not every day, most days if you're really serious, you've got to practice most days, for years 
Maybe for lifetimes. Why not? What else are we going to do? You know, so we have to practice. Because why wouldn't we be interested in doing what leads to the deepest healing? And, you know, as the Buddha describes that our existential problem is we keep misperceiving what's going on. We keep projecting or imputing a self-drama on our experience and then act accordingly and they get really bad results. And then when we get really bad results, we receive that and we react by imputing a self-drama on what's going on and act accordingly and get really bad results. And even if your life is one of those lives that's going pretty well, you know, first of all, it won't always be that way. But let's just say it is that way now. But even now, with our life going reasonably well, we're not safe, and we know it. Maybe not consciously, <coughs> but if we reflect, if we reflect a little bit, we know we're not safe. We know that whatever it is that makes us feel relatively content, that that could change very quickly. So we do this training with real vigor, with real respect and sincerity. We're training the mind to connect and sustain with present moment reality. And in so doing, we begin to feel the effects. We begin to feel more balance, more inner happiness, more peace. This is just the beginning of practice. But we have every incentive. I mean, even if this were the end of practice, it would be nice. If all people got from the practice was this inner healing of samadhi, it would be a great thing. But it's just beginning. Because then with that balance, that inner happiness, then taking that with curiosity, with a, a deep, deep sense of inquiry, like it's actually a very wholesome desire for the truth, wanting to see or understand the truth of things, and in particular the truth of the mind, the nature of the mind itself. What is this mind? We begin to work on what we'll talk about when we get to the third section of this book, generally we refer to it as the wisdom part of practice, or the view, where we're really interested in the underlying view of the mind, and purifying the view of the mind. So that's really what we use the, the balance for, is to purify the view of the mind. We're investigating experience in a way that purifies our view, from generally what we would call a self-view, or self-drama view, to a view that doesn't involve self, which you could say is no view. We don't actually need a view to live our life, to respond, to be a good human being. But that will get to later. So I'll leave it here. Um, we have about 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people, share from your own practice, or any questions you have about what I've said tonight. And in particular, it's a good time to bring up any questions about meditation strategies that you work with or experiences that you have in your set that you have uh, some questions on. So, what comes to mind? Hey, Julian. Where's awareness? I have a kind of 
I would say awareness and knowing are the same in the way that I'm using it now. It's the, the nice thing about knowing, and it doesn't work for everybody, but it, it makes it an ongoing process where awareness being a noun, but some people it's more useful to use awareness as a noun and knowing sounds like a lot of work, and that's not the right idea either. Because the whole idea is to uh, experience knowing as a natural, effortless happening. So, words are always troublesome. Yeah, say your name again. Alex. Um, this is just a general question. In my practice, I find that the most difficult place that I tend to, one of the most difficult places for me to be mindful in my day is like, you know, when I'm eating. And it's almost like I'm rebelliously um, <laughs> so check out and don't pay attention to eat really fast. And I might say, well, I'm going to be mindful and take one bite. Um, and I know there are, you know, Well, a lot of forgiveness because we have a lot of baggage, you know, conditional, conditioned habits around the eating. All you have to do is watch my cat eat, you know, and... There's so much intensity and uh, lust <laughs> with the food. <laughs> and you know, we're not that different. Our programming's not that different than other mammals. <coughs> it's probably mostly more similar, certainly, than it is different. And so that all gets triggered. You know, better eat it before somebody bigger grabs it from us. And we can do some things about it. You know, it's one of the nice things about ritual and routines is that over time, with the commitment to the routine, it can counter that more primitive conditioning that we all have around food. There's a beautiful reflection that the monks and nuns do before that, Buddhist monks and nuns do before they have their meal. And, and you might know that Traditionally, monks and nuns don't, I mean, if they're practicing in a more simple way, they only have one meal a day, and they have to finish it before noon. So then they have a very long period of time, from noon until mid-morning or whatever, but they're not really eating any food. And so it just keeps things really simple. You know, there's not that primitive program. He doesn't have too many opportunities to act itself out. And, of course, during the day, later in the day, we'll feel the need. You know, we might smell the food from the local village or whatever, and we might feel that compulsion to eat. So we get a lot of practice not picking it up and proliferating on it. Because if we think about it, it would be very hard not to break the commitment, you know, the rule. They go get food. And the thing that they say to themselves or out loud before each meal is something, I'll have to do a bad paraphrase, but it's something like, uh, I take this food to nourish the body, not for entertainment, not to beautify the body, you know, but just to sustain this body so that I can continue to practice 
So you, the idea is you see your food as medicine, not as entertainment. And for a lot of us, we reinforce that lust by uh, turning our food into entertainment. You know, we like the way it looks. We like the different tastes. You know, like bringing up my cat again, she basically has eaten the same thing her whole life. We buy organic chicken once a week, you know, put it in the pressure cooker with some water. We throw some oatmeal in the water after it's cooked. <coughs> Whatever greens we have in the fridge, we chop them up, put some greens in, take a couple scoops of oatmeal, take a little chicken, cut it all up, sometimes put in a little Vitamix every night for, you know, 12 years now. That's, that's what she's eaten. 14 years. And, uh, she still has a lot of lust for her food. You know, so, you know, we don't need the great variety that we have. We just think we do. Because we're not actually looking for medicine to keep the body healthy. We're looking for entertainment, something to sort of make us feel special or make us happy or something like that. And maybe we can find a different place to find that happiness so that we're not dependent on food to make us happy because it doesn't work. I mean, how many delicious meals have we had? A lot. Still, we need another delicious meal. It doesn't really lead to sort of, okay, now I'm done. It's just always more and more, you know. So, reflecting on the food as medicine, using ritual, and just being creative too about like uh, starting over and not afraid to see the beast. You know, use a sense of humor. So when you see yourself kind of being that beast and eating, it's not so much that it's, it's like you don't want to see it, but why not? Why can't I see this? You know, it is the way that it is. <coughs> so I make that, like for me, it's, I used to use a lot of control things. I fast. For years, I fasted once a week. And, uh, you know, and it was really useful. I learned a lot, but eventually it didn't seem the right way to practice. So now I'm much more, you just do whatever you want, but I'm going to be aware of what you're doing when you do it. So if you eat like a beast, I'm going to be there. Awareness will be there, knowing it. Oh, it's like this. And I'll see how unsatisfying it is. And it doesn't lead anywhere. And it slowly wears down the habit. It's only being unconscious of the habit that keeps it going. So if we keep infusing the activity of eating with awareness, as ugly as it might be, it's okay. Don't judge it. I mean, you can try some control things. There's, it's really fine to experiment with those. To do that in a lighthearted way, because generally you get an equal and opposite pushback if you're using just a lot of force of will. So I'm going to eat in this way. Thanks, Alex, for bringing that up. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, but 
pleasantness of the food. I, I guess I wouldn't use the word enjoying because it, it implies sort of the mind being dependent on the joy. So realizing the pleasantness maybe a little bit safer phrase. As long as the mind, as long as we're not creating the, uh, a mind that's dependent on the pleasantness. So that's the thing. It's like, can we receive a delicious meal, be fully present with it, and then when it's done, it's like there's no trace. Like a part of the mind that wants it to be like that tomorrow, wants it to last. Like I notice so often I'll eat more than I need to eat because I don't want the pleasantness to end. You know, and it's so unfortunate to do that. But it's just because there's pleasantness, I'm not mindful of it. And so, naturally, when we're not mindful of pleasantness, we just want to keep it going. That's what we do with pleasantness. We want to hold on to it. We don't want it to end. But if I were fully mindful, wise and mindful of the pleasantness, I'd be okay. I knew I would know right from the start. It's just pleasantness. It comes, it goes. And so I wouldn't have to keep eating. You know, I could just end when the stomach said, oh, I think that's it. <coughs> Thanks. Time for a couple more. Anybody else has some thoughts? Any questions about breath meditation come to mind? Judy. Well, you might be clear about your reaction, which is maybe why you don't say anything. You might actually be clearer than you're admitting to about your impulse to want to say something. Like, this is the thing. Sometimes you really do see something clearly, like, about what somebody is doing. But we're also seeing clearly that our motivation to say something isn't so clean. It's like we want to fix them. Because their suffering irritates us. I mean, to put it bluntly. <laughs> and that's especially true with parents and kids or just anybody that's really close. It's really hard to be near somebody we care deeply about when they're suffering. Even if it's just sort of a, their bad habit, you know, not a terrible suffering. And so and that's what I would practice is like seeing the patterns in your son that you, that you see clearly to some degree are are rising out of ignorance and are leading to stress for him and difficulty in his life. And being really comfortable with that scene.
because there's a certain kind of exposure to see somebody we care about. Something is a particular kind of exposure to relax with. Oh, can this be okay? And it doesn't mean you're not going to do anything, but before you do anything, you're going to make peace with the truth that he's this way now. And it doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't mean like for four days, you know, you have... But just in that moment, first and foremost, you're getting to a place where you're okay with the way he is. So then, if you decide to say something, it's not because you're not okay with the way he is. Because you've made peace with that. Then if you say something, it's going to because come out of compassion. But a lot of times we think we're coming out of compassion, but we're actually averse to the way it is for a partner or for a friend or for a son. It's tricky business. It's the best place to practice and the hardest is in these intimate relationships. You know, with siblings and sons and daughters and parents and lovers and good friends. Because, you know, we're, we've got this uh, clan mentality and, uh, and uh, so we we're vulnerable to the <coughs> suffering of those around us. Notice the unpleasantness of that pain without being confused by it. So even before you go turn your attention to him, you have to make peace with your own suffering. And then when you make peace with that, you're really okay with your body, your mind being the way that it is. Then you can look at what you see, and then you can heal that peace, like no longer confused by what you see in his behavior. So you're seeing it, and it's having its impact, it's touching your heart, but you're not reactive to it. You're really willing to let your heart be touched in seeing what you're seeing in your son's behavior. But first, you can't even do that now until you deal with your own suffering, that you don't like it. You have to deal with that pain. In the same way, you're going to eventually deal with his pain by feeling your pain and not feeling you have to do anything about it. Just being worried. It's not that you're not doing anything about it. You're doing something about it. You're letting it be. It's actually a powerful movement. And really, it's no different than the, that ultimate acceptance of vulnerability. Like, life is uncertain. Life is vulnerable. And this is just a particular expression of that truth. It's not a small thing to do that work, you know, and when it's done deeply, it's, it gets generalized. It's like the mind understands this is the path to happiness, to real freedom. It's not just how I have a healthier relationship with my son. <coughs> but it's a symbol of all the work the mind has to do. And if I can do it here, I can do it anywhere. We need to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath together.
in undertaking these practices, this training, as a beautiful way to care for our heart and a beautiful way to care for the world. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thanks for putting up with my gooey head. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.